1: Welcome folks to the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Chewing Klamatchko. I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Kesseling. And on today's podcast, we have a special episode of State of the Markets, in which I discuss my 2022 market outlook and answer questions from investors in a live event. On the show, I discuss my outlook on inflation, interest rates, bonds, equities, both domestic and international, meme stonks, M&A, private equity, SPACs, crypto, NFTs, key risks investors should be thinking about, and more. So with no further ado, here's my 2022 Market Outlook. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Happy Friday. Welcome to the 2022 Market Outlook State of the Markets For going to do some Q&A after this. We're going to get into all sorts of asset classes. I'm talking equities, both long and short, going to discuss various sectors, stock-specific things, bonds, interest rates, inflation, mergers and acquisitions, private equity, SPACs, crypto, NFTs, meme stonks, and more. All the good stuff. If you can hear me loud and clear, please give me a wave. Let me know you're out there, and I will invite up speakers at the end of my... Discussion here. It won't take too long, so feel free to ask questions. You can uh, flip me questions via Twitter as well. I will be looking at that after. However, let's get into the show. First, I want to touch on some macro stuff. So really to set the stage for asset price performance all depends on interest rates, which are mostly driven by inflation. You can think of interest rates as financial gravity. When interest rates are low, they pull down expected returns and push asset prices higher. When interest rates are higher, then your discount rates go up and prices of assets go down. So we're clearly in a tightening cycle. Why? Well, you just need to look at inflation. As Expected, and I discussed this nearly a year ago, it's not transitory as the Fed had claimed earlier in 2021. Latest inflation print, 7%. And that's only gone up uh, when it, they expected it to go down. At least they had people believe that it will go down. But inflation is high, seems here to stay. I wrote last spring on tools that investors should use to prepare for this. And I'm not saying sell everything, buy gold. That's not it at all. We just want to make sure that we're well diversified such that we have components within our investment portfolios that can deal with these specific environments. For example, in the 1970s, when you had a high inflation environment, they call it stagflation. Gold did really well. Stocks did poorly and bonds did poorly. So a common misconception is that stocks and bonds are negatively correlated in every environment, which just isn't true. So I wrote last spring what investor tools they should have in their toolkit. I call them the four horsemen of the inflation apocalypse. That is Bitcoin, that is gold, it's real estate and it's infrastructure. So what we refer to as alternative currencies, Bitcoin and gold, these will help maintain purchasing power in environments which fiat currencies are rapidly depreciating, which we're seeing right now, inflation of 7%. And that 7% refers to the CPI, uh, and, you know, real inflation, true inflation is likely much higher. It's an estimate that true inflation is more like 14%. That just represents the depreciation and the purchasing power of our fiat currencies. The other two horsemen of the inflation uh, apocalypse are real estate and infrastructure. So those are really proven to maintain their value in inflationary environments. Why do you, We'll continue to see inflation above 2%. I don't think we're going to see much above 7%, but everywhere I look, it seems to be continuing. And this 2% inflation target that they aim for is CPI. And generally, true inflation measured by, you know, if you look at the the uh, CPI basket, it's not really realistic if you want a, a more realistic view of inflation, including you know, food and energy and things that we actually use, uh, house prices, that will be significantly higher than CPI. So keep that in mind. We want to include assets that help maintain our purchasing power. I think it's incredibly risky to just own stocks and bonds. So I think the four horsemen of the inflation apocalypse includes some of those in your portfolio, Bitcoin, gold, real estate, and infrastructure. So on to interest rates, the Fed. The Federal Reserve effectively guides most other Western central banks, Canada, Europe, etc., Japan, to a lesser extent. In any event, we believe that the Fed will start raising rates and commence a rate hiking cycle starting in March of this year. So that's in two months. Be prepared now. I like to call it risk management before it's too late. You want to preempt this stuff, right? You want to be proactive with respect to effectively fortifying your investment portfolio and protecting your financial assets. And in 2022, I believe we'll see three to four rate hikes. So get ready for it. Uh, Your time to prepare is now. It's clearly we're heading into a tightening cycle. Why is that important? Well, the Federal Reserve has a bloated $9 trillion balance sheet that has grown tremendously over the past, call it 12 years. And this massive, massive balance sheet caused by just an unprecedented amount of quantitative easing, also known as money printing, has called has caused huge market dislocations. Specifically, and this is the most clear market dislocation I think I've ever seen, 10-year bonds are yielding 1.75% while CPI is clocking 7%. That means that real- interest rates for the 10-year bonds, they're yielding negative 5.25% real. Who would buy that? I call bonds certificates of confiscation. I believe real rates are only heading up. I believe the 10-year yield is heading to 3% on a nominal basis. So what does that mean? That has huge implications for bonds. Clearly, a bond bear market has started. Bond investors have had it so good, Since the 1980s, they basically had a wicked 40 year bond bull market in which yields only declined and bonds only went up in price. They had it too good. And some bond investors effectively never saw a bear market and don't believe it would ever happen. But clearly, yields have bottomed and they are on the up and up. What does that mean? Well, do not own duration. You look at long term bonds, not only do they have a poor outlook. We're talking about 10-year with negative real expected returns of 5.25% currently. And even if the CPI normalizes to the 2% target, that's still negative real return. You're losing purchasing power over 10 years under most scenarios, right? So there's a poor outlook for fixed income and bonds. And recent really bad performance. I mean just look at the start of uh, look at the stock chart of the bond ETFs. Look at what's on the 52 week low list. Poor outlook and bad performance does not make the bull case for owning bonds within your portfolio, especially when they're no longer negatively correlated with equities. We saw that in September of 2021. Stocks went down 5% if you look at the S&P 500, and bonds went down too. There's no guarantee that they're going to be negatively correlated. You get basically no uptick from the yields because the coupons are so damn small. And it looks pretty clearly that we're facing more of a 1970s environment than a 1980s environment in terms of yields going up, not down. So in my opinion, owning long-term bonds is dumb, and don't be dumb right? Look to generate yields through variable rate exposures. Some examples of these would be leveraged loans, which are based on a floating rate yield. Mortgages as well. There's some good mortgage ETFs out there. SPACs. I mean, SPACs present a great variable rate yield producing instrument. I should note that there's now only $10 trillion in negative yielding debt globally. Only 10 trillion. It was as high as 18 trillion, but you scratch your head, it's like, who's buying negative yielding debt? And this isn't just negative on a real basis, i.e., inflation adjusted. This is negative nominal yield. So their real rates of return are very, very negative. The other comment that I'd make about Uh, fixed income is stay far away from private debt. There's just too much fraud risk in this. There is a big fraud unveiled last year in Canada bridging income, which was a multi-billion dollar fraud. And it's just, there's no transparency, no opportunity for due diligence. I mean, if you trust a private debt manager and can get your Get comfortable with their portfolio, then by all means, as long as you do do, do your due diligence. But in my experience, these things have been wrought with fraud, and there's just too much risk to justify. Now, let's move on to equities. Let's read the tea leaves here. What do we have in terms of macro environment? Okay, inflation is high, number one. Number two, we're heading into a tightening cycle uh, from a monetary policy perspective, so interest rates are headed up and real rates are increasing. What does that mean? Well, certain sectors will do well in this environment of high inflation, central bank tightening cycle, and real rates increasing. What are those stocks and sectors that we want to belong? Those are financials, industrials, energy, and materials. Basically all the sectors that have sucked over the past decade, right? The rule in capital markets, And it's been around since the dawn of time and will forever remain, is that of mean reversion. Typically, markets that have done poorly go on to do well and vice versa. There's the dogs of the Dow for a reason. The underperformers become outperformers. So we want to be long financials, industrials, energy and materials because they're best for the macroeconomic environment that we're in right now and that will continue. These things play out over years not weeks or months. What do we want to be short or underweight? Well, that is tech, utilities, staples. You've seen these moves play out for the past three, four months. It's not a short-term move. This is a multi-year trend that we need to be aware of. Remember, the trend is your friend. My view is that undervalued stocks are going to outperform Overvalued stocks are going to underperform. This is mean reversion. This is how markets have worked for over a hundred years. It's just that over the past dozen things have flip-flopped, where the most expensive stocks have outperformed dramatically, and value stocks have sucked. People have begun to doubt that buying attractively valued securities works anymore. But it's going to come back in vogue. It has worked tremendously for the past three, four months. But to make up the past dozen years of excesses, the outperformance of value is going to take many, many years. The best analogy today is the year 2000. We're just coming off of the most wicked gross stock bubble of all time, far greater than what we saw in the late 1990s, right? So the best analogy, if you look at market history, is the year 2000. There's a saying that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. I think the next Three, four years is going to rhyme with the years 2000 to 2003 slash four. So what do you want to do? You want to be long, cheap quality stocks, high quality stocks at low valuations. You want to be short or underweight, what we call wildly overvalued junk stocks. These stocks went up tenfold overvalued due to just the tremendous amount of quantitative easing, easy money, and rabid speculation in the capital markets. Now, these wildly overvalued junk stocks are down 50% and people are like, whoa, they can't go down much more. They've been cut in half. Well, guess what? They went up from being 10 times overvalued to just five times overvalued. So to get to fair valuation, they only need to go down 80 more percent. And guess what? In a bear market, they typically overshoot, right? So, I wouldn't be surprised if the ones down 50% go down an additional 90%. So keep that in mind. Now, from a global equity allocation perspective, U.S. growth stocks have underperformed massively over the past decade. And remember, mean reversion is always going to exist. Not just that, but the massive outperformance has left U.S. equities, we'll be talking about, large caps, S&P 500, at massive valuation premiums to the rest of the world. For example, U.S. stocks are at a Shiller PE north of 40, which only happened twice in the last over 100 years. It happened in 1999, and it happened in 2000. So I expect the S&P 500 to underperform global markets this decade. If we go back to the best analogy, which was the year two thousand. S and P was flat to negative over the next ten years because it started at such an extreme valuation, effectively where we're at right now. So I wouldn't be surprised to see in the near term S and P in 2022 flat to down. There's the old Wall Street mantra: the first so the first five days of the year go, so goes the year. We're down what two to three percent over the first five days. And that typically, on average, indicates underperforming year, right? So keep that in mind. And I wanted to touch on what has happened historically. So over the past decade, the S&P 500 valuation multiple, it's more than doubled. It went from eight times EBITDA to 17 times EBITDA, which is its highest valuation on record. So I, I spoke of the Shiller PE. Many people say, oh, that doesn't work anymore. But let's look at, S&P 500 on effectively any metric out there. EBITDA, it's at its highest level of all time, uh, up to 17 times EBITDA, more than doubling over the past decade. On a price-to-sales basis, it's north of three times sales, more than tripled over the past decade. Also, All-time high on a price-to-sales basis, all-time record high on a Q-ratio basis, all-time record high on every single valuation measure except compared to interest rates. But if our view is that interest rates are going up, the last bastion of the equity bulls, i.e. low rates justifying extremely overvalued equity levels, that goes away as soon as the 10-year hits 3%. And guess what? I think the 10-year is heading to 3% or over 3%. So given that we're at extreme valuations, as we're heading into a tightening cycle, I expect valuations to normalize, i.e. decline to a more reasonable level. Now look at, let's take a look uh, under the covers, what do we got here? Apple, the first company to hit three trillion dollar market cap. So I, once upon a time, was the biggest Apple bull out there. Well, I initially went long 2012, so about a decade ago, and I loved it. Best business on the planet of the earth, and it was trading below five times EBITDA, and it was buying back their shares hand over fist. That is what I call a formula for. Massively explosive upside returns. Right? If a company is dirt cheap, super high quality, in fact the best in the world, and buying back shares, to me that's a no-brainer. Carl Icahn came out, he agreed with me. He bought the stock. 2016, Buffett bought the stock, went all in, loaded the boat, and he's generated over a hundred billion dollars uh, in gains. Greatest trade of all time, but. Apple, the largest stock of the S&P, went from less than five times EBITDA in 2013 to now 23 times EBITDA. So their multiple expanded over fourfold for basically the exact same business. And you got to remember, there's a huge bear case on Apple, given that its founder and CEO died, Steve Jobs. And people said, oh, under Tim Cook, it should have a significantly lower multiple. In any event, we've seen this across the entire us equity spectrum massive multiple expansion just based on a tremendous bullish sentiment combined with the easiest monetary policy of all time so what does that mean we expect other your other markets europe canada japan emerging markets to outperform i like i stay away from the sketchier ones i mean stay away from china stay away from russia no matter how cheap because when talking about cheap we're talking about based on uh, shareholder earnings and in my opinion in those countries uh shareholders don't really own own any of that so in any event i believe the uh, tsx will outperform why because the tss The TSX is stuffed with banks and energy. We expect banks and energy to outperform. I think the TSX will be up 10% plus this year. I believe the S&P 500 will be flat to down. We're entering an environment of huge outperformance over a multi-year period of value stocks. Here's an interesting stat. When bond yields were at 1.8% in 2012, so 10 years ago, they're at the equivalent level of bond uh, bond yields on the 10-year treasury. Value stocks traded at a 100% higher valuation on a relative basis versus growth stock. So it just gives you a sense on how much they need to catch up just to get back to where they were, 100%. So with that being said, I believe over the next decade, Berkshire Hathaway will outperform the ARK Innovation ETF. That is my big call. For hedge funds, I believe we are entering a golden era akin to the fund performance for long-short equity funds between 2000 and 2003. And if you remember, during this time period, the S&P 500 dropped 50% over a three-year bear market. Long-short hedge funds had positive returns. They crushed it by buying cheap high-quality stocks and going short these wildly overvalued junk stocks. It's nearly the exact same story playing out that we saw 22 years ago. Keep that in mind. Another thing that I just have to touch on is meme stonks. <laughs> meme stonks such as GameStop and AMC were just coming to, just becoming a thing like a year ago, took the world by storm. I mean, the amount of amateur investors that had never bought a stock in their life, let alone had a brokerage account that reached out to me from you know high school or junior high saying, hey, I own GameStop. Uh, what should I do with it? I own AMC. It's going to go up to a million dollars. These people are, are just, they know nothing about valuation, investing. It's all just a, a speculative game. But the thing with GameStop and AMC is, you know, it's very easy to value these companies, and they are still sitting at inflated valuations, likely 5x to 10x that of their comparables, right? So if you view these as massively inflated valuations, just sell. I mean, get out now before these tank. I think they have north of 50% downside. Listen, that whole movement is done. There's no short squeeze there's, uh, it's lost its steam, negative momentum. There's no reason to be in these meme stocks anymore. Just get in, or I mean, get out before everyone else starts plowing out. Don't be the the last person at the party. You know, get out before it's significantly lower. I only see downside for the meme stocks. So if you're not involved, stay away. I think they're just too volatile to short. Uh, in any event, if you're long, please sell. Uh, I think staying in it, you'll regret it. Let's move on to M&A mergers and acquisitions. So in 2021, we did have a record year for m I believe that will mostly continue. Rising rates could present a headwind as could an equity bear market. Rates are rising, but if we're talking about the 10-year going from 1.75% to 3%, I don't think that's too big of a headwind for M&A. There's still a ton of liquidity. The amount of dry powder and private equity, they're forced buyers to the tune of literally trillions of dollars. These private equity firms raise trillions of dollars. They have to spend it, right? Or they don't generate their massive lucrative fees. So they're going to continue to ride this cycle. One problem with private equity is they're paying higher and higher valuations. In the heyday of private equity, they paid eight times EBITDA or lower. That was the formula for leverage buyout success: buy a business at eight times EBITDA, cut costs, finance it with six times EBITDA of leverage, and enjoy that levered return. Right? But now they're paying, you know, fifteen to twenty times EBITDA. What does that mean? Well. The return on an investment, you think what drives return? Well, starting valuation is the best indicator of what kind of returns you can expect. If you're paying below eight eight times EBITDA, you can expect high returns. If you're paying 16 to 20 times EBITDA, you can expect low returns. That's how the markets work. That's how the economic machine works. And that's what you should expect when paying higher and higher valuation on these leveraged I do expect to see more club deals where private equity firms team up to buy bigger and bigger targets. And if you remember that sort of marked peak of the market in the year 2000 prior, sorry, in the year 2007 prior to the great financial crisis. So all these things kind of follow the same similar pattern over time, things to watch for. I think private equity will underperform just because they're paying higher and higher valuations and if we look at the S&P 500, it's trading at 17 times EBITDA, and I believe private equity are paying equivalent valuations there. So that summarizes my thoughts on private equity, MA, but private equity has trillions of dollars to spend. Now, let's move on to SPACs, which has over $100 billions, uh, of dollars to spend. So we just cracked 700 SPACs in the market. I see a continuation of IPO issuance. We've seen a lack of definitive agreements. I've seen one since December 23rd, which is disheartening. Uh, Hopefully, that increases. One thing on the definitive agreement side, I see a continuation of what we refer to as SPAC 2.0, which is more corporate car votes uh, in terms of the targets for business combinations. And since there's been a flood of supply of SPACs, way overwhelming the demand, there's some tremendous investment opportunities here for yield players. SPACs are yield vehicles. They're basically almost all universally trading at a discount to their NAV with a limited term, 12 to 24 months. And what a SPAC represents, if you see a SPAC with a $10 NAV and it's trading at 90 That is a T-bill at $0.97 on the dollar plus an equity call option for free. That seems like a pretty compelling risk reward, especially versus everything out there when considering negative or flat expected returns for the equity markets. The beauty of SPACs as a yield vehicle is you can generate higher returns than corporate bonds, Without the credit risk and without the duration risk, so in my opinion, they're significantly cheaper. As I said, continued issuance. I wouldn't be surprised to see a thousand SPACs outstanding by year end. People say, "Whoa, that's a lot." And yes, it is a lot. If you go back two years ago, there are less than ninety SPACs. So to say, you know, over tenfold that—that's big expansion. However know that there are 10,000 private equity funds globally. So SPACs are still a high within the grand scheme of things. But given there are so many, I do expect to see an elevated rate of liquidations. We saw one last year in 2021. We saw two, two liquidations in 2020. For 2022, I'm calling for more than 20 liquidations, which would be a liquidation rate of between two to three uh, percent, and If you're buying a SPAC below NAV, you'll be fine because you still generate a positive return. However, if you're buying the warrants, be very, very careful because in a liquidation scenario, SPAC warrants do go to zero. So keep that in mind. So that wraps it up for SPACs. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest growing alternative investment solution providers. With a suite of institutional caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long term performance. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund symbol ARB on the TSX is the world's first SPAC focused ETF with a diversified portfolio of SPAC and merger arbitrage opportunities in an easy to use, low cost ETF. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF trades under the symbol ARB on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Now let's talk about crypto. In my opinion, Bitcoin represents digital gold, should be held to maintain purchasing power in portfolios. It can be risky not owning Bitcoin if everything else is tanking and it's helping maintaining your purchasing power. I tend to advise, you know, since it is so volatile, perhaps a 1% position is appropriate. If it goes up 10x, Which I believe it will over the long term. My target is 500,000 per Bitcoin. Then you get to enjoy that upside. If it drops 80%, which it has been known to do, and I wouldn't be surprised if it does continue in the future, you're not hurting too bad with a 1% position. But I think it's riskier to not own than to own. People complain that it's volatile, but the way you deal with volatility is not just to say no the way to deal with volatility is through position sizing. Is it appropriate to own stocks in most portfolios? Yes, depending on position sizing. If you're 50 years old and you have 50% in stocks, that's fine. If you're 80 years old and you're levered 10 to one in stocks, that is a no-go, that is way too risky. If you're 50 years old and you have 50% in Bitcoin, that is also a no-go, but if you're 50 years old and have 50 basis points in Bitcoin, I think that's perhaps more appropriate. So keep that in mind. Risk is dealt with by position sizing, not a yes or no decision. So Bitcoin, digital gold, Ethereum is digital oil, i.e. Ethereum is not a store of value asset, but it's an asset with utility. Ethereum is not to be held, but to be used right? We use Ethereum to buy NFTs, NFTs, blue chip NFTs, which I'll get to, they will outperform Ethereum, a diversified basket of blue chip NFTs is my thesis, which I'll touch on next. But sticking on crypto long-term target on Bitcoin, $500,000. But keep in mind, it'll continue to be wildly volatile, 80% volatility. So that is what fivefold that of equities. We're going to see multiple bear markets each year. So keep that in mind. If you do buy Bitcoin, expect it to drop 50 to 80% at least once or maybe even multiple times per year. But you should maintain the long-term view that it will go higher over time. Every bear market that I've been in Bitcoin, it's only gone on to reach New highs, and I always regret not buying more. On to Ethereum, there's a number of so-called Ethereum killers, the most popular these days being Solana. They're becoming more popular, but won't kill Ethereum. I think that it has the lead. It's a leading smart contract platform. It will maintain that lead. Gas prices are ridiculous. You could say that Ethereum is broken. I remember buying an ENS domain for $15 and having to pay $150 in gas fees, which was a tough pill to swallow. But as it transitions to Ethereum 2.0, proof of stake, that will help uh, mitigate this, help maintain its crowd as the leading so-called utility cryptocurrency and as we move to proof of stake on the Ethereum network, this will generate great opportunities for yield-seeking players, but obviously bad for Ethereum miners and GPUs writ large. On to NFTs, non fungible tokens. So keep this in mind. Blue chip NFTs, I believe, have 10x upside. They will continue to rally. I wouldn't be surprised to see a floor price with the CryptoPunks and the Board Ape Club of north of 500 Ether, right? That is a bullish call over the next decade. However, keep in mind that nearly every NFT collection will go to zero. So I think the rare 1% or less will have tremendous upside. The 99% you'll lose a crap ton of money on, if not 100% of your money. Stay away from minting. Too dangerous. It's like playing in penny stocks. Only participate in minting a new NFT unless the team is fully doxed or it's a continuation of a collection. Or, you know, the team personally, I've seen way too many scams and rug pulls. I mean, NFT mints, it's just too easy for thieves to steal money. And every week, it seems I'm seeing a new rug pull. So just stay from minting. Totally not worth it. Wait until a collection gains some um, momentum and proves itself out. I think that's a safer way to play these things. Even if you end up paying 5 to 10x more, you'll save money over the long term. I am bullish on some uh, microcap NFTs, i.e. below 1 ETH. My top blue chip pick is the uh, Mutant Apes I think they will have some convergence to the board ape. So Mutant Ape floor is around 15 ETH. Board Ape floor is around 70 ETH. So that's an 80% discount of the Mutant Apes are trading at 20% of Board Ape. I think that relationship will flip and that Mutant Apes will trade up to a 20% discount or 80% of a Board Ape. So all things equal price target for the Mutant Ape floor is 60 ETH. In the current environment, top micro, pat, micro cap NFT under one ETH. I like OnChain Monkey. It's the first fully on chain NFT. So it's very unique, great community, and they're doing positive things for society. The thing to know about NFTs is if you come from a background in equity trading, you'll quickly be able to see that momentum and relative value. These factors work absolutely phenomenally well in NFTs. It's like trading stocks and commodities in the 1970s, where these signals, there's no quant investors to capitalize on them yet. There's no no computers to really make this market efficient. NFTs is they're such an inefficient market that basic things like momentum, relative strength, trend value, all these things. Uh, It it just reminds me of primitive equity and commodity markets where people who know this stuff can just make a lot of money. Onto airdrops, I think they'll become more prevalent, especially airdrops with utility. The recent LuxRare airdrop provided the roadmap to substantial value creation and really assembling and building a community very, very quickly and building a project uh, success, successful project through this uh, so-called vampire attack that they did on OpenSea. I'm really excited to see how that turns out because to me, it was this genius to incentivize users on a monetary basis and basically capture billions of dollars pickpocketed from the likes of venture capitalists I mean, it's a great story capturing platform value for the users instead of billionaires. Um, that story just resonates. It's a feel-good story, and it has worked so far. I believe we'll see more airdrop tokens that have utility, create significant amount of value. One that I'm so looking forward to, and I'm sure uh, the entire NFT universe is is the Ape Token for the Board Ape and Mutant Apes. Perhaps the Kennel Club too. Uh, We shall see, but that is certainly the most speculated and anticipated potential token in the NFT markets. I think NFT holders will be continuously rewarded with these so-called special dividends. We got the LUX token. We got the SOS token. There's the ENS token. And all these are worth hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars, depending on how many NFTs you've owned and traded. And it just represents basically free money, special dividends. So these days, it pays to be an NFT investor. And most people still don't know about these crazy special dividends that we continue to receive. So risks to all of this going forward. China, I mean, that's probably my number one risk right now. China versus everyone, China versus Taiwan, China versus the U.S., uh, China just seems to be on um, not a good path. Let's keep it uh, let's keep it there, and I think that's the biggest risk out there right now. In Russia, number two. Uh, there's the whole Ukraine situation, but you know Russia seems to be also not on a good path, but less powerful uh, compared to China, uh, both from a economic and military standpoint. Although both. Should be cautioned as probably the biggest two risks out there right now. Uh, COVID variants. I mean, Omicron came out of nowhere. Thankfully, it's less dead, deadly than the other ones. But if you look at cases, they basically went vertical and presents significant economic challenges and supply chain challenges. So, um, you know, unfortunately, I thought we'd be the, through the pandemic by now. We're not. Keep that in mind. That. Thus far, it's been happening for two years with you know seemingly no end in sight. Uh, hopefully for 2022 at the end, we'll be past it. But you know, I'm not holding my breath. So keep an eye open for those types of risks as well. And then on to the unknown unknowns. Three years ago, no one had pandemic on their radar. There's just so many things that we don't know, the so-called unknown unknowns. So keep in mind anything can happen. How do we deal with that? We diversify. That is the name of the game. Some people hold just one or two assets, stocks or stocks and bonds. To me, that is insane. That's not diversification, no matter how many stocks you own. They all become highly correlated in bear markets. So please diversify into other asset classes. Help protect yourself from all these risks the other risk being out of control inflation that would be my fourth risk on that list the deal that, the way that we deal with all these risks is to diversify we have our core stocks core bonds and then diversified sleeve of uncorrelated alternative asset classes so that wraps up my 2022 market outlook I want to go on to some questions here. Feel free to DM some through Twitter. I'll keep that open. Did get a couple by email here. And, uh, oh, raise your hand if you do have any questions. I will invite you up as a speaker if you do have any questions. So just raise your hand, ask to speak, and uh, I will bring you up. Uh, after I answer the first couple questions. So, first one is How do you think about allocating to stocks and bonds in the current market environment? Yeah, I think there's a risk. It's obviously the future is uncertain, but there's a risk that we could see a market similar to the 1970s. And what happened in the 1970s? Well, stocks and bonds became highly correlated and they both got smoked. What worked in that environment? Well, gold worked in that environment. So, the name of the game here is diversification. Stocks and bonds were highly correlated in September, and we could see that on a go-forward basis. So diversify, diversify, diversify. That should be our number one lesson from this outlook. Second question is, what is one thing that investors should be worrying about? Well, I listed four things, China, Russia, COVID, inflation. And well, the fifth bonus one is the unknown unknowns um, that we just don't know about. So obviously, keep your eyes and ears open. For any risks, keep your debt levels or your leverage margin zero or low, something that uh, no one ever wants to get a margin call. So uh, be careful about that as well. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest growing alternative investment solution providers with a suite of institutional caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance. The Accelerate One Choice Alternative Portfolio ETF, Symbol 1C-ONEC on the TSX is Canada's first alternatives portfolio solution, providing exposure to six alternative asset classes, 10 alternative strategies in one easy-to-use, one-choice ETF that charges a management fee of just 0.2%. The Accelerate One Choice Alternative Portfolio ETF trades under the symbol 1C-ONEC on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. I did see a uh, question. If you want to raise your hand, I can invite you up to speak at this point. Mike, I think you may have had a question as well. I can invite you up uh, as speaker. Check the old Twitter for questions. Okay. All right. So I do have a question from Trendwizel. He says, utilities and REITs tend to outperform in upcoming economic situations. Why would you underweight them? <clears throat> so I said uh, bearish utilities because um, they are trading at crazy valuations as are consumer staples based on their dividends. So typically utilities have been you know, and they're they're I'd say less exposed to than bonds. Um, so, it's kind of about like a mixed bag. So, there's a whole infrastructure bucket that I'm bullish on. And this is infrastructure with pricing power, right? And so, if we're talking about infrastructure that can re rate their revenue to rising CPI, then that is the exposure that we want. But, you know, wildly overvalued utilities that don't have that that's, those are the ones that you should stay away from so it's a mixed bag with respect to utilities and REITs they tend to be able to raise rents and things of that nature and real estate tends to maintain its its purchasing power right so you got to pay attention to starting valuations and can they adjust to a higher rate environment that is important so thank you for the question we got another question here Okay. This is a SPAC question. Do you think Hugg's Hugs hdgs gets SEC pushback on the Panera deal? You know, that's a tough one because they're participating in that um, Panera initial public offering. We saw uh, Bill Ackman try that with, with the Pershing Square SPAC. The SEC shut him down. So, I mean, it is a risk since we did see that play out already. And H. UGS is trading up above NIV. It rallied about 45 cents from 981 to 1025 on that deal announcement. So you do have a, a bit of downside there, not much, 40 cents. Um, it's certainly a good question. And it's it's tough to see. Uh, I'm never zero 100%. I think in terms of pushback on the Panera deal, I see it's maybe. So, I put the odds of that happening at 40%. Okay, a couple of requested here. I will invite Trevor, if you want to un- unmute yourself and ask a question. Okay, I'm not hearing anything from Trevor, but stay on the line. Hopefully, we can get you in. I will address Roth Overlord. I'm going to ask you up as a speaker. Love the handle. Uh, what do you have for a question? Feel free
2: to unmute. Oh, is it? Is it fine if I go first, or do you want Michael to go? Yeah, yeah, go
1: for it.
2: Yeah, let's hear it. Yeah, I had. A, thanks for having this, uh, Julian. I had a couple questions. One of them uh, was warrant related. Do you think that the the sell off that's going on right now in pre DA warrants? Do you think that that's warranted? That's the first question. And the second one is, you know, I hear a lot of people saying that, especially with these, let's say, post DA warrants that haven't despatched yet that what they're trading at now is what the market, it's kind of like a reflection and an accurate view of what the market perceives it to be. Do you think that that's accurate, given that we've seen a lot of repricing and warrants once the deal goes through? Like, for example, bull was one where people, you know, were selling it like around 90 cents, 80 cents, and all of a sudden, a couple months, we emerge a couple months out, even in this kind of like bear market now, and it's like at a dollar five last I checked.
1: Yeah, some, so some good questions there. <clears throat> I think from an average perspective, SPAC warrants are undervalued. You know, it's we haven't seen them, um, you know, much cheaper than this. I believe one year ago they're trading north of $3 on average, and now there's 70 cents on average. So down roughly 80%. And the, you gotta remember the driver of warrant or say pre-deal spAC warrants have two drivers. Number one, they have to get a deal done. So certainly elevated liquidations are a risk, but given where Pre deal SPAC warrants are trading, they're pricing in like upwards of 40 or 50% of SPACs liquidating. That's like, you know, 200, 300 SPACs liquidating. It's not going to happen, right? Like, that's just insane. I'm calling for, you know, single digit liquidations, not 30 to 50%. So the warrant pricing in the current market is reflective, you know, just fear of massive liquidations, which I don't believe will happen. And then the second part, you got to remember that warrants, their pricing is based off volatility, right? And so a lot of these companies going public by SPAC are highly volatile. And so the warrants will be worth a lot just based on that volatility, right? Because once the deal closes and the pro forma entity becomes seasoned in the market, you have arbitragers. Coming in and delta hedging those warrants, i.e., correcting their prices. So, if you believe that a deal is going to close and the warrant's going to normalize where it should trade under black shoals, you know, taking into account the call, call provisions as well could make the argument that, you know, deals back warrants should be trading close to $2 uh, after deal closing. So, keep that in mind. So, you asked, is the bear market in warrants warranted? I like the pun. So I think they're wholesale undervalued, if that answers your question. But uh, also be careful, because I think some of them, small fraction, will end up going to zero D2 liquidations, because I do expect elevated liquidations, i.e. we had one last year and north of 20 this year. So I'm talking about you know over 2,000% increase since last year. Did you have, uh, did that? Answer both your questions there.
2: Yes, and I mean, with this, with like a lot of, um, you know, I guess with the beauty of this back right now, especially these pre-DA uh, deals, is that you know it can kind of react to what the market is doing. Although, in terms of liquid, you mentioned liquidations. Do you think that will, you know, do you think it will cause more liquidations because maybe there were companies that had a deal in place or were thinking about it, and all of a sudden some of these sponsors may come back and say, hey. The market just tanked, you know, growth just went down. We're going to have to, you know, cut the valuation 30%. And then them sort of being like, no, I'm not, I'm not bringing the company public at those prices.
1: Yeah, certainly sponsors have a much more difficult environment, but they can continue to come out unabated. Um, so that's just the reality that they got to deal with. But there's a, a ton of opportunities out there. I talk, I spoke of SPAC 2.0 corporate carve-outs i think that presents a you know massive potential for target opportunities and that really haven't has not been harvested yet so even if you think in in one sector like biotech there's literally like over 10,000 private biotech companies out there right so there's just so many companies and you know the amount of unicorns out there i believe there's over 1000 now in terms of private us based uh technology companies that are have like high valuations. And the fact of the matter is they're raising capital. Uh, whether they raise capital in the private market or public market, I don't think it'll be too different. Julian, that's a good point that you make in terms of corporate car votes. Just sitting in on these management presentations with SPAC sponsors, there's a significant amount more that are listing that as one of their avenues to find a deal. As opposed to last year, I would say that would be a question that I would ask pretty much every sp- sponsor team that I would be on a call with, and maybe twenty percent of them would would in- indicate that that was an option. Now you're just seeing pretty much every one of them are listing that as as a, f- a fertile hunting ground. Yeah, yeah, I agree. We're starting to see some like the uh, Harley Davidson uh, electric motorcycle car boat was one. We had that American Express. Corporate car boat as well, and that um, EV toll deal Eve that was a corporate car boat. So, I continue to see that as a more and more popular trend going forward. So, I'm going to invite uh, Trevor to come up to speak as well. Trevor, you got a question Yeah, sorry, I had
2: some technical difficulties before. Um, I, I really liked your view on energy and financials doing well, so that, you know, the TSX outperforming the S&P. My, my question that I have that I'm thinking about is, if we do get a higher rate environment, um, the one concern I have with Canada is the housing prices are, are some of the highest in the world, and we don't have 30-year fixed mortgages like the U.S. And I'm just like, how does that work its way through the financial system in Canada? Like I'm, I'm just trying to think the secondary effects on rates rising. Thanks.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, and I'm by no means a housing expert. However, uh, as I understand it, and you know, own, owning you know a number of properties in Canada is that it differs in the U.S. and and that you can't just effectively mail the keys back to the lender and say, oh, I don't, I don't want this anymore. I don't want this mortgage. It's yours. Uh, You know, there's um, no non-recourse mortgages here uh, that I know of, Um, and the lending standards have, for the most part, tightened up over the past half dozen years. You know, they're uh, not really lending uh, above 80% loan-to-value on the mortgages. They are kind of stress testing things, i.e., lending assuming rates are, call it, you know, 300 basis points higher. But and that's not necessarily the exact number. I don't know if they're lending at 200 basis points higher, 300 basis points higher, whatever. But we're talking about three to four rate hikes in 2022, probably the same from Bank of Canada, and then the ten-year go- going from 1.75 percent to three percent. So I don't think that re-rating on the uh, rate side. I mean, we're talking about a, a near doubling in the long-term interest rate. However. Uh, 3% isn't, um, you know, a 10% interest rate, right? So from a affordability perspective, I don't necessarily foresee it as a massive issue. And in Canada, I believe, the five-year fixed rate is more popular. So, um, to the extent there is some renewal of those rates, it'll take, uh, quite a while to move its way through the system. And I know people have been calling for the Canadian housing bubble to pop for a number of years. And Canadian housing bubble, what we refer to is is generally just Toronto and Vancouver. So it's really focused in, in two specific areas, the two largest cities in the country for the most part the rest of the country is isolated from that but you know in my opinion vancouver real estate has been in a bubble since 1993 and it hasn't popped so it's like these things can uh, as as uh, said the market can remain irrational longer than you can stay solvent so um i don't think that it'll necessarily have a massive effect um could have some effect in terms of causing some losses for the banks, but not anything like uh, what happened in 2008. Thanks. All right. Now we got PQ. I'll invite you up uh, as a speaker here. All right. You got a question for us? Okay. Nothing coming through. And I believe that is it for questions. So- Oh, I do. I have one more question
2: if you have time. Okay, great.
1: Yeah, for sure. I got uh, three minutes here.
2: So I was wondering, in terms of the role of the underwriter in these deals, would you say that they're taking, I'm kind of confused in the sense like, you know, a lot of people take, put a lot of like, uh, I guess, uh, I guess, impact in terms of what, how good is the underwriter? Are they, is it Goldman Sachs or is it one of the, the smaller banks? And I guess it probably depends on what sector you're focused on since certain banks are better at that. But are they taking an active role in terms of the connections and trying to, to trying to source some of these targets? Or would you say it's pretty much just the sponsor on their own that if it's facilitating the deal, they're just underwriting it?
1: Yeah, so you gotta remember that, you know, SPACs are are pretty lucrative for the underwriters and the investment banks as long as they get a deal done. Because if if a SPAC liquidates, that's really bad for the underwriter because they lose most of not only most of their underwriting commission, because the majority of it is deferred um and only payable if they complete a business combination and not payable if they liquidate the other thing is upon a business combination there's you know a ton of additional fee generating activities there's the m a advisory there's the pipe financing placement right and those fees if you look at, any SPAC business combination deck, those fees can be $30 to $60 million. And rest assured that the majority of those are going to the bankers. Um, So they are well-incentivized to get a deal done uh, rather than liquidating. The underwriters really don't want to see a liquidation. Oh, I got one more question by Twitter. Uh, Late entrant, let's call it, from Philip he says, What do you think about the recent energy stock ramp up and their outlook going forward? I think that this is the start of a long term trend. I think it's got legs for multiple years. They're, they're still very, very cheap. The sentiment is still quite poor. Generalists have just started buying them. Energy is at its lowest allocation in the SP 500 for like ever. I think all the entire energy sector is like quite a bit lower than Apple in and of itself. Um, So keep that in mind. I believe energy is cheap. It's got great momentum and it'll likely have a multi-year run of outperformance. So still early. And we can wrap it there. One hour right on the nose. So thank you everyone for joining me for State of the Markets 4. Wish you the best of luck with your security selections in 2022. All right. Thanks everybody. Bye.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast, Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.